Welcome to Pause and Reflect, a brand new podcast which looks to discuss the furry fandom and profile one creative or significant member of the community in each episode. I am your host Mike Pause, and joining me today on Skype from Boston is professional musician and songwriter Matthew Ebel. Matthew, welcome to the show. Ah, well, it's great to be here. If you could uh, please state your name and species. Obviously, my name is Matthew Ebel, which uh, uh, I'm assuming anybody who's listening to the show has read the show notes and uh, saw that in the title. Um, but in the fandom, I go as Hallie, which is uh, short for Pandion Halliatus, which, as everybody knows, is the osprey, a diurnal bird of prey that uh, lives entirely on sushi. So pretty much my my dream job right there. Ah, so uh, how did you come across the furry fandom? Um, geez, uh, if I say AOL chat rooms, that'll make everybody think that, you know, I'm like a thousand years old or something, but frankly, yeah, AOL chat rooms. Um, I mean, that's how I came across the, the fandom itself, uh, was, you know, I, I was into birds since I was like 12 years old and, you know, I talked to an imaginary friend who was a bird, uh, was an, he's an osprey and, uh, uh just sort of getting into that and finding resources online and then found somebody, uh, found a guy by the, the, the name of Marlos. Actually, I still remember his name. Uh, it was a tiger named Marlos who, uh, pointed me towards something called, uh, the furry fandom and, uh, uh, found, found AOL chat rooms and, uh, eventually furry muck. And, uh, it all pretty much went downhill from there. Uh, I think my first con was, uh, my first con was Anthrocon. Uh, in the year 2000. So uh, that's that's jumping into the deep end. Did you go to a con almost straight away then? You... Uh, no, no, no. I didn't go to the... I didn't go to a convention. Let's see here. Uh, I discovered the Phantom at about 14, and I guess uh, in 2000, that would have maybe about 19 or 20. No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, uh, 21. So yeah, I was just, just barely... Uh, old enough to drink at that point so yeah there was there was a good like seven years where i basically just lurked online looking you know texting texting the hell out of people on furry muck and uh cruising the the vcl for artwork that's reaching uh reaching too far back for you i i think i remember the end of vcl and i certainly remember my time on aol on the instant messenger as well as irc and on uh the yahoo messengers and uh uh, MSN before it uh, disappeared. Yeah, they all sort of turned shitty and went away. So <laughs> that's what happens when internet companies start to own stakeholders. Yeah, exactly. Or the, the other way around. Yeah, when when there's when there's shareholders driving the the technology as opposed to uh, uh, visionaries. Uh, yeah, things get ugly quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have to see what happens to the internet in the next couple of years. Um. So how did you pick your species? Uh, they sort of picked me, really. I mean, I like I said, I've been into birds since I was 12. I, the, the moment that I remember uh, looking, looking at this concept and going, oh, yes, uh, was only in a much higher voice because I think I was 12. Uh, I remember, I can't remember whether it was the, the Monster Manual Volume 1 or Monster Manual Volume 2 or whatever, but the, the old Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manuals, uh, the very first creature 
in there was something called the Arakakra. And kudos to whatever, you know, game designer came up with that creature, not just because, you know, it's, it's a bird and therefore awesome, uh, but naming it with a double A name. So it's the first thing in the book. Like that's, you know, whoever was in charge of that one, like good on you for positioning yourself, you know, right up front there. But the Arakakra were a, a race of humanoid birds that were not monsters per se. They were just sort of intelligent birds and they could be good or they could be evil. They were, you know, somewhat xenophobic and somewhat claustrophobic. So uh, I, I really, as soon as I saw the picture of that in the in the monster manual, I was like, this is this is freaking amazing. I, I absolutely love this. That sort of became the, the seed for what I uh, aspired to be, you know. And also growing up, we uh, used to go up to uh, a lake, a teeny tiny little lake uh, that had just a ton of osprey all over. So we'd be out there, you know, my, my dad and I'd be out there fishing and uh, just being circled overhead by these uh, fish birds just constantly, you know, just sitting there with their, their little twittering sounds above us all day long. And I really liked I really liked their hairdo more than anything else. They got the sort of spiky thing going on. I'm just seeing you now with giant spiky hair now. That's just the picture in my mind. Yeah, that's the other thing is like, you know, I, I, I love that look and I can never pull that off because God gave me curly hair. So if I grow my hair long enough to actually sculpt in any way, shape or form, it's it pretty much I get pubic head. You know, that's pretty much it. I could just get this massive, you know, white boy <laughs> bush up on top and it's just it's just unpleasant. I wish I was like a five foot tall Asian girl, you know, because you can do anything with that kind of hair with the right product in it. But straightening hair is just a yeah, you know, I'd rather not. I was about to say it's not going to grow into a giant afro, is it? Uh, If I let it. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be a cold day in hell before I do that again, though. Uh, I've done that a few times and it just it looks like shit. But um, how did you first get involved in music? Uh, oh God, uh, from day one, I don't know. Um, I, when I was five years old, uh, we had a piano in the house, uh, an upright grand, this old upright grand. And I remember being about like five years old and, and wanting to take piano lessons and basically pestering my parents and banging on the thing repeatedly until, uh, I guess they, I finally broke their will and, uh, they, uh, they got me piano lessons and I took 20 years of piano lessons, you know, learning, uh, uh, learning, learning the, the, the classical stuff, you know, my favorite was always Rachmaninoff, uh, just cause he had huge hands. And by the time I hit puberty, you know, my hands were like, you know, twice the size of the rest of my body. So I looked like, like some kind of a gorilla, you know, my arms were swinging all the way down past my knees and I got these big hands so I could play big pieces like, um, uh, prelude and C sharp minor. But, uh, it, it didn't take me long to realize that like, I'm really more into blues and uh, uh, rock music than I was into, you know, classical music. I was going to say, and on that note of of, of being in, uh, into that music more than classical, who are your inspirations? Who, who are your musical heroes? You know, what drove oh, you I down that path? <laughs> I friggin' hate this question. Like you, you, you have to tack on an era with that one because my my musical inspirations rotate. You know, there are some people who are like you can tell that they were heavily inspired by Bob Dylan or something like that. And like my, if you listen to music from, from like my CD collection, you know, my album collection over the years, you can kind of tell that like my, my inspirations rotated. So like, you know, early on, I listened to a lot of classic rock, you know, Steve Miller band, that kind of stuff. And then it sort of morphed into the, some of the contemporary Christian acts, most notably Cademan's call, 
because Derek Webb is just this brilliant songwriter and some of the production that they had on an album called Long Line, Long Line of Leavers, uh, some of the, the, the folk rock meets modern rock stuff that they had on that album was just just so damn good. And it's such a shame that because they were a Christian band, nobody would ever nobody else outside that bubble would ever listen to them. Uh, and then after that, it became like Ben Folds. I was all about the Ben Folds sound. And then after that, uh, all about the Foo Fighters sound. And now I'm just sort of sort of trying to figure out a way to make all of that work together. So I don't know. It's a mishmash of of influences, and I can't really fault any one of them for uh, creating the the horrible sounds that I make today. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds that you're striving to experiment and try new things. So. What's the hardest part you find in writing new music? Lyrics. <laughs> trying to write lyrics. Like I can come up with I can come up with instrumental stuff, you know, just screwing around, but trying to come up with lyrics that mean something actually, you know, like actually have something thought-provoking, something interesting to say and at the same time are memorable and not just word soup and at the same time fit into a uh, a syllabic structure that works in uh, a song that, you know, somebody might be able to walk away humming, you know, like that's, oh, it's, it's friggin' work. <laughs> it's a big pain in the ass. Just having something to say is hard enough, but then trying to, to make it rhythmic and memorable and even, uh, even catchy, you know, or maybe just maybe even like genius, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> trying to, trying to, go that direction is so friggin' hard. There's just so much pressure on every word. I can imagine. And I must say mm. that uh, within the fandom, at least, you're one of the few musicians I can f- call up that I can think of that actually writes original lyrics. A lot of musicians seem to do covers. Yeah, I've played in, you know, at sci-fi conventions, steampunk conventions, furry conventions, gaming conventions, technology conventions. And the one thing that seems to be constant and one thing that has been a serious uphill battle trying to get booked at these places is that most of the entertainment is uh, filk, which I I had always heard the definition of filk as taking, uh, you know, modern songs or folk songs or whatever and rewriting the lyrics to be uh, topical. You know, basically just weird alling something with a sci-fi bent or with a furry bent or whatever. And I I could never get into that. It just it never I don't know. I I've always been writing my own tunes. I I could never get into just doing that kind of thing. But that seems to be what most acts that I've seen do, you know? I, I think it's uh, sometimes it can be very funny when someone takes a, a song that's famous and, you know, furizes it, shall we say, or makes it fluffy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, most of the time I see people just covering a song they like in their own way, which is still great. It, um, some of the musicians in the fandom, I think, are quite talented, and I really, really hope that uh, they continue to grow because music in the fandom is a is uh, becoming a bigger part of the community, I think, especially when you look at oh, cons. thank God for that. Well, certainly when you look at uh, the, some of the concerts at various conventions now, I think that there's a there's a bit more of a diversity in the musical acts. Yeah, just just in the last year, actually, I think it was last uh, last furry fiesta uh, was the first time that 
uh, me and Pepper Coyote and Foxamore and uh, Rhubarb and Cosmic and AJ and Amadia and God, there, there's more more than I care to name, <laughs> more than I can even remember. Like there's a just a shit ton of musicians all at the same con, and we just sort of converged on the main stage and took over every last aspect of the main stage. You know, like any any spare moment that was available, there was either sound checking or performing happening. And then it happened again in Anthrocon. And it's like now anytime we're we're at a uh, uh, oh, no, no, actually, it was before that. It was at, at FAU at, at Fur Affinity, Fur Affinity United. I think the guests of honor were going to be uh, Foxmore, Colson. And I think actually, no, I think that was at Foxmore and Colson. And then they were bringing me in because uh, they usually bring me in to do the auctioneering. And uh, Colson backed out. And uh, so they they named Pepper Coyote as the uh, as the the replacement GOH. And then we did this like three man concert thing, this impromptu three man concert thing. And then we did like three of them that weekend. <laughs> and it just became this like, holy shit, there are people who can actually like jam and just have fun on stage and, and actually put on like a, a professional grade show like this. You know? Yeah, uh, I'm sure it helps that. Foxmore does music full time. I do music full time. Pepper Coyote is a music teacher. So he does basically does music full time as well. And, you know, all three of us uh, have to think on our feet pretty quickly. So that, you know, that was when I sort of first discovered like, okay, there's some there's some people in this fandom that are as good as anybody I ever jammed with in Nashville, you know. Yeah, it's and, really cool, and hopefully it's inspiring a new generation of furs joining to to take that up potentially who are interested in it. Oh, I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah, um, you're a pioneer with your fan base. You interact a lot with them, and you you get a lot of your albums covered and funded by them. Um, do you think this is where music in the mainstream may be heading? Uh, I, th- I think music in the mainstream is pretty much already there. There's there's a lot of, you know, like I, I'm not one to ask about the, the the larger music industry. I did work at a record label. I did, you know, play the Nashville scene for a while. I did, you know, back up a major label star at the Grand Ole Opry once. But like industry right now, the, the music industry seems to seem to have less and less influence over over people's tastes as they used to. The one problem is still though, that there's this level of prestige that comes from being on a record label. So like, you know, going through established channels makes you still makes you look like you've made it to a lot of people. And I don't know if like, you know, younger generations who didn't grow up in the eighties and nineties when everything was controlled by like four record labels, if that stigma of, well, he's raising funds on Kickstarter, so he he's just some indie is, is going to go away or not. But I am happy to see that there's enough people out there that actually will support artists, you know, <laughs> understanding that, you know, supporting them directly means that they can do interesting shit and not have to worry about uh, the, the confines a record label might be putting on them. Yeah, I'd like to think that the audience now has the choice to pick the music they actually want to hear. You'll no longer have the uh, feeling that uh, one artist might define an entire era anymore. Everyone's kind of split off into their specialist little circles. Yeah, which is which is good and bad because, you know, if you made it back in the, the old model, you really fucking made it, man. You made it, you know, you you became an overnight success and, and you know, rich and, and popular and all that kind of shit. But now it's like there's instead of being a, a, a 
one giant pond and there's the big fish and the little fish. Now there's just a thousand ponds. It's difficult to find the right people to support you. But at the same time, like there's there's so many more pools of of people to draw from, you know, like there's there's audiences that I never, ever would have been able to reach, you know, before the invention, uh, the invention of the Internet. That's for sure. I was going to say uh, the Internet's a big part of your writing. In fact, uh, the whole kind of geek culture is. So what came first <laughs> for you, geeks or furry? <laughs> Both. I mean, like the. I was always uh, I was I was always someone who was never popular in school. As a matter of fact, I was always hyperactive, kind of smart. You know, I was in gifted programs and whatnot growing up. And uh, uh, so I, I was always sort of an outcast. Uh, I took a real liking to technology in junior high. So that pretty much put me squarely in the, the geek crowd. And then I also got into uh, drama in you know, junior high and and on through college, that put me even further into the geek crowd. You know, the the Monty Python watching, not football watching crowd. You know, so I don't know. Geekdom, geek the the geek thing has become sort of its own genre to the point where you have really terrible shows like uh, uh oh crap, what is it? A uh, Big Bang Theory, which somebody once described to me as geek blackface, and I think that's the best description I've ever heard. You know, people people making productions and like, well, we we need geeks to to think this is legit. Well, let's just cast Felicia Day and Will Wheaton, and you know, we can make we can come up with shitty writing that's you know not even close to clever, and just cast those two, and we're all good, right? I'm I'm kind of like over it because it it seems to be played out at this point. Ah, okay. Well, we'll have something else about that a bit later. Going back to your music. Um, one of your first big albums, uh, Goodbye Planet Earth, is a homage to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, what is it about Hitchhikers that uh, really stands out to you then that you felt like you had to make this? After Beer and Coffee came out, I I knew like, okay, my next project, I want to do something uh, kind of like, you know, Dark Side of the Moon. I want to write an album that synchronizes to a movie and nothing really struck me as like, well, what, what movie really touched me in such a way that I really needed to, to make this happen immediately after resolving to, to do that. I saw the, the Hitchhiker's Guide movie in the theaters in Nashville when it came out and I was just blown away. I, I thought it was, was amazing. You know, I, I'd seen some of the, the Hitchhiker's Guide BBC stuff, you know, from the 1970s. Uh, uh, and I had, you know, heard, snippets here and there from uh, the actual books, but I'd never actually seen any of the entire production in any way, shape or form. Now, little did I realize that Garth Jennings basically wrote an entirely new story that starts after the world blows up and just sort of, you know, goes in a completely different direction from there than the books or the BBC production or the radio production. But it doesn't matter. It was it it was still a a really engaging story, really well told story. I thought it captured the spirit of the the books, which I then you know after seeing the movie, I went and read the books. So you know, there's that going for it. And I I must have watched that movie a hundred times. Yeah, it just it it just it was it hit all the right places. It was funny in that Douglas Adams you know very British humor kind of way. The acting was spectacular. It's one of the few things I actually like Sam Rockwell in, uh, you know, who plays Zaphod Beeblebrox. 
Uh, he's about 50-50 for me, whether I love him or hate him in a movie. And uh, it just everything about that movie just said, you know, this is this is something you you got to work with. And so I just set to work. You know, I had a couple of songs already written that I knew I wanted to put onto an album and uh, just started at the beginning. I thought, well, where is it? You know, the movie's like two and a half hours long. I'm not going to write a two and a half hour album. It's got to be 70 you know, 80 minutes or less because that's the length of a CD. So where do we start? Well, start with the world blowing up. You know, that I think from there, I got the title Goodbye Planet Earth and just went from there. You know, I didn't even have any lyrics or anything before I had an album title for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'll take it. It's a film you still enjoy watching then as well. Obviously, you're going to perform to it in March later this year. It's um, which con is it again? Sorry. Uh, It's uh, for Sona Con, which is a brand new convention that's an offshoot of Ring of Fire Con or Roth Con down in Virginia. And because they're part of a larger sci-fi convention, that convention has a license, I guess, that covers public performance of certain intellectual properties. And Miramax was covered by that license. So they can actually show the movie behind me while we're doing the album. And I, I absolutely cannot wait for that because it's, it's, you know, like I said, it, I've only been able to do this once uh, back in 2013 when uh, Further Confusion uh, got the license for the film as well. And we had a lot of fun with that, but you know, it's, it's been a while since I've been able to do that. Yeah. And of course, Goodbye Planet Earth then seems to have spawned a whole set of albums, uh, set in a kind of science fiction setting that did that just come to you uh, organically or was that something, uh, that uh, fans responded to? I mean, how, how did the kind of idea of the high orbit, uh, come along? Actually, high orbit, high orbit predates Goodbye Planet Earth. Um, it actually predates beer and coffee, uh, back in, well, maybe, uh, I'm not sure if it was 2004 or 2005 when I started doing high orbit, but back in 2004, I got involved in podcasting, which was a, a, a shiny new concept back then. And it was a really like rabid frothing community of enthusiasts, uh, that were into it. And I started doing my own podcast. I decided then and there to do something with, an outer space theme because I've always been, you know, a sci-fi nerd, a big Star Trek fan. And, uh, I resolved not to play my own stuff unless it was a live recording. I would mostly be featuring other people's music because, you know, how freaking narcissistic would it be if I just did a show entirely just featuring my music all the time? You know, nobody, nobody would listen to that, but doing a, a show with other people's music, uh, was a lot of fun, and it exposed me to a whole lot of new artists that I never would have heard of before either. Jonathan Colton was uh, on episode, one of his songs was on episode two of my show, and this was before he had any hits anywhere. So, like, you know, I, I got exposed to a lot of of cool up-and-coming artists that way. Yeah, But I didn't just want to do a new music show. Between the songs, me and my robots would, you know, do some kind of a, a sketch like we'd be, you know, running from some evil aliens or, you know, there'd be zombie groupies or something trying to take over the ship. Yeah. And it uh, just became a theme. And that ran for, I think, like 55 or 60 episodes. I was going to say, when it comes to your robots, um, what's the inspiration behind the Proto 1 and 2? Um, Proto 1 was my uh, uh, production droid. Uh, I used to call them droids before I realized the term droid is a, a registered like trademark uh, owned by, you know, George Lucas. So now they're robots. Um, <laughs> but I, I was just messing around with uh, uh, ways that I could disguise my voice so that I could do alien characters. And 
got this really cool sort of robot sound and made him the the announcer and just sort of the 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 fictional you know producer for my show is uh is this robot and eventually he got lines and a speaking part and uh became a character to the point where people like him he got more fan mail when i was doing the show regularly than i did you know like <laughs> and people did, would be I, asking him and did he answer them did he answer them Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've been listening to some of the more recent work that you've been doing, such as uh, High Orbit Saves the Pandas and also the lives yeah. of Dexter Peterson. And um, I do like the way that the, the, that you've really fleshed out those uh, those characters um, <laughs> as you've gone on. Um, and they do have kind of distinct personalities now. So obviously those two albums have got very specific pop culture references. What is it about the influence of pop culture on society that attracts you to write songs about it? Is it because it's accessible to the audience or is it something that you personally want to share a connection with those characters and dramatic films? I guess I think it's, I think it's more along the lines of just the, those elements of pop culture have affected me. All art is sort of like a a nuclear reaction. You know, you've got to be hit by, you know, a neutron from something uh, in order to uh, to split and release even more energy of your own, and then something that you release hits somebody else and causes them to to create something new. You know, it's it's more along the lines of something in pop culture uh, has hit me in a in a certain way that made me want to create something. Uh, not so much me deciding to do some kind of commentary on pop culture in general. Just it's. It's purely reactionary. Okay. Um, but of, on the subject of commentary on the world, some of your songs do definitely have political references. Would you, what would you say about that? Would you say you're anti-establishment or something? Because some of the songs certainly can sometimes give off that vibe. Uh, anti-establishment is a, a dangerous term to, to toss around. Um, anti-complacency, I suppose, is is what I would go for more than anything else you know like peace peace is a dangerous thing peace is a very dangerous thing because there's been a lot of atrocities committed by people who thought that they would bring about world peace if only the rest of the world would share their vision of what a peaceful world was you know and if i have to you know kill the people that get in my way and disagree with me it's it's for the greater good for a peaceful peaceful outcome in the end a little bit of disruption now and then i guess like i i'm all for civil disobedience, you know, or, or civil unrest, not civic unrest, civil unrest, always questioning, never taking anything that's said to you by uh, a corporation or a focus group or a politician or a political party, never taking any of it at face value, you know, which is a whole lot easier to do in, in you know, these times of the Internet. But if you're told something like, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug, <laughs> you know, you should you should probably go look up and see what what whether or not that's actually true uh, before you you believe or, you know, e- even worse, advocate for something that may or may not actually be accurate. I, I, I tend to lean more liberal as far as my politics goes. But that's only because the the level of cognitive dissonance I've seen coming from at least the uh, American breed of conservatism has left a, a foul taste in my mouth of supporting the status quo, of supporting this this fictional image of 
what life used to be or what life uh, should have been, you know, as opposed to reflecting reality. Yeah. And so I guess in, so some of my music, it, it, it reflects that as well. But on that subject of, of, of conservatism and this idea of them perpetuating an image of what used to be, a lot of them like to think of themselves as religious. Some of you, you were making at one point Christian rock music. Mm. You've obviously moved on from that, but does religion still hold any, um, anything in you? Um, do you still have faith? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I've been a Lutheran my whole life, which is, you know, sort of a laid back and groovy version of Catholicism. If you, if you're not familiar with it, you know, sort of like a, a church of England or Episcopalianism, you know, only, uh, I guess even more laid back, you know, we make beer. I don't know. Religion, religion and, and spirituality to me are, are two different concepts and I'm not against religion. I'm not against organized religion because organized religion does do a lot of very good things, you know, as a corporate structure, the organized church can raise funds for causes that just, you know, people who believe in something may not be able to organize that well. And organized schools of thought are a good way to categorize and and make sense of something that you cannot, by definition, you cannot study empirically. You know, matters of faith, you cannot study empirically. But at the same time, going back to, you know, the concept of never taking anything at face value and never just believing blindly what you're told there is a lot of, again, cognitive dissonance between what I've been told by religious leaders, many of whom I respect, and what you actually see in the world around you. Yeah, I, I can uh, understand that. I mean, uh, when I went to uh, primary school here in the UK, you know, we were taught uh, some basic religious stuff. But um, I always remember, the one I always remember is, you know, do unto others as you do unto you. And I look at some of these politicians in the States who say they're religious and then they seem to have no, they seem to have no pity for, for people below them. And I, that just uh, confuses me a lot and angers me, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a selective level of, uh, of application. And, you know, like, I don't know if you saw that thing, uh, that little video that a bunch of celebrities put out called Prop 8, the musical. Proposition 8 was, you know, banning gay marriage in California. And it was uh, a campaign based on entirely on lies, uh, heavily promoted by the Mormon church. I mean, like financially supported by the Mormon church down there. And they, they had a whole musical number done, uh, uh about picking and choosing. You know, I think I saw it. It has it had Jack Black in it, if I remember. Jack Black, uh, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, ton of a ton of people from Hollywood were involved in it because I guess you know see the difference between uh, uh, gay marriage and society falling apart. Uh, but that, that's beside the point. the 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 point being, like, uh, I don't know if the website still exists, but GodHatesShrimp.com which was set up as a uh, response to, you know, GodHatesFags.com, uh, the, the Westboro Baptist quote-unquote church. Basically, like, you know, there are verses in the Bible directly next to things about homosexuality that carry equal condemnation for eating shrimp, for wearing clothing cut from two different kinds of cloth, you know, from women being allowed to speak to men, you know, that kind of, those kind of horrible things that are bringing society down, you know there's a lot of religiosity being used for political gains. And that's a tale as old as fucking time. 
I can't tell you what the correct interpretation of our creator is. Uh, all I can tell you is what I've experienced and what I think uh, is a is a good standpoint to operate from, which is, and this is biblical as well. Even Christ said, you know, the only way you're going to get in is if you come like a little child. Little children don't assume that they know everything. Little children don't assume that they they uh, have everything figured out. They come with an open mind, and that. I think is something that you just sort of lose in your twenties is the ability to have an open mind. Yeah. Although I'd like to think, I'd like to think with the internet, the way people can kind of see past certain, um, established beliefs, if that, if I can put it like that, not religious maybe, but you know, like the idea of what a state is or what a a certain uh, country's uh, values are compared to another. So, you know, there might be, Oh, you can't, you shouldn't talk to people in that country because they're bad type thing, you know. Yes and, in- and no. Yes and no. They've they've found out that, you know, a lot of people go, if they're looking for something online, they go to reinforce their existing beliefs rather than have their mind opened. And unfortunately, because anybody can publish anything on the Internet, it's very easy to just go and reinforce a stereotype that you might have had. You have to go in with an open mind first and actually try and find opposing sources and question their credibility and not everybody's willing to do that because it takes work you know <laughs> true it's it's unfortunate yeah i mean i i was i guess i was always optimistic about the internet and i've always liked the way it helps bring down certain barriers and can allow you to make the it world is harder smaller. to propagandize now. yes i'd like to think so we'll go back to the fandom a little bit <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. This is a furry podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's also a profiling. So obviously it's all about you too. But um, I, we want to go back to the, the fandom in the sense of experience. So the question here would be, well, it's twofold. It's uh, what's your worst furry experience so far? And what's your best that you have on that you can think of? Oh, geez. Uh, my, my best, I guess, furry experience, like like as a furry, like going to conventions and whatnot. Um it's weird that like my my best furry experience is uh you know one of uh, humanity it which seems so you know oxymoronic but the fact that i have met some phenomenal artists graphic artists musicians some some amazing free thinkers in this fandom who refuse to be put into a box i, I can't really pin it down to one specific event which i'm i'm sure is what you were hoping for but every every time I go to a convention or every time I, I'm, you know, forwarded something online, there's a, a chance that I will find somebody who will change my outlook on life because of the things they write, the things they draw, the things that they create. You know, I, I pity people whose only fantasies, whose only the extent of their imagination leads to I want that faster car. <laughs> or like, you know, I'd, I'd like to be a football player. Nothing wrong with football players, but like if that, if you, you know, the, the kinds of people who dream of things that go beyond the confines of the human body or the confines of our universe, you know, or the confines of this reality, just that's truly inspiring. Um, and I guess on, on the same note, the worst experience with furry uh, is, are the people who, Treat it as though it is only a fetish. See also Tony the Tiger Gate, 
you know, the, the, the people who, for, for whom it is strictly a sexual thing and are own, are so happy to go to the media and tell them that. And it's partially the media's fault for, for wanting the freak show story because it gets them the, the clickbait that they, they rely on these days. But it's like the people who, who just don't understand that, like, you know, walking around in fetish gear in a public place is not okay. There is a time and a place for that. And there, you know, it bothers me every single time I, I see people who throw common sense to the wind just because they think that this thing that they're into is so damn good. Everybody must be into it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. That, that makes sense. your question. Yes. That or does. am I totally sidestepping that? No, no, like you've answered, I think, here. I think you've answered both questions perfectly fine. Moving on from that, uh, where do you think the fandom's going to be in five years time? Uh, Pittsburgh. No. Um, in five years time, I think it's going to be all Zootopia. Um, you know, every, everybody can see this coming and Disney is not really being shy about just, you know, pushing this one to the furry fandom. Unlike Kellogg's. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's a children's breakfast cereal, uh, in that case. And while Disney I'm sure is intending for Zootopia to be rated G, they 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 know who's going to watch it. You know, it's like the the people that that produced My Little Pony over the years. You know, since I've been a furry, you know, since like the mid nineties, I've been I've been able to see each phase. Like I I came in about the time of the Lion King. Now, what got me into the furry fandom, and you know, ex- what explains a lot of you know what I'm into you know today, it was actually the nineteen sixties Robin Hood, which is way before my time. But you know, still, that was that was one of the things. You know, the way Don Bluth would animate animals is just fucking amazing. His ability to to animate you know uh, anthrop- anthropomorphic animals it knocked down the barrier to the fantasy. So, like you know, starting with that. There's a lot of people that came into the the fandom before I did that were there because of that. And then the Lion King, huge influx. And then Pokemon, which was after, you know, my my time, you know, I was I was too old for Pokemon, huge influx from there. Uh, Then there was the the like the the My Little Pony phase Uh, here and there. There'd be little bits and pieces from various Disney movies, but they didn't really have any more animal based movies until Zootopia, really. The the My Little Pony crossover happened recently, and now we're about to see in in for the next five years probably it's just going to be this huge Zootopia explosion. You know, it's going to be a lot of people who came in from uh, from that realm. As far as furry versus the rest of the world, I think in the next five years it's going to be somewhat like uh, the sci-fi genre in the 1980s. It's it's starting to gain more social awareness and some social acceptance and there is going to need to be a lot of self-policing to prevent it from being taken off the rails yeah that seems and to i'm be not the, a prude don't uh, don't get me wrong like i'm i'm gonna say i'm a rock musician i'm as perverted as anyone else i was gonna say like, i think there, there i think to be, i think we all are generally no one denies yeah. it or no one who's open-minded like us would deny it, it but yes it's I, like, I, it's I, like I, david lee roth once said everybody wants some <laughs> but yeah, I I think it's an interesting time because as you say, there is going to be that influx. There is already that social awareness growing. The media interest is there now. And the media's shift is focusing when possible on a more positive side, I think, when we give it to them. If they see the bad side to clickbait, they will do it, unfortunately. But yes, I think that um, as much as some people go, oh, well, it's not up to you to tell me 
how to enjoy my lifestyle or my social life, yes, but that is partly true. But I think that people have to start thinking more about the greater aspects of the community that they're affected or part of. And I think that's maybe the problem is that a lot of furs are still quite localized. They, they'll, they'll interact yeah. maybe on their computers and they'll go to meets or conventions in a bubble and they maybe don't think in the wider world. They, they think that well, furry is still kind of in a bubble. Here, here's the thing that I've noticed, uh, having played shows at, you know, science fiction conventions, steampunk conventions, you know, all these different geek conventions. It's all it's all sort of the same class of people that are that are into these things. And those are people who are either socially awkward or, you know, kind of like me, like more more theatrical and, you know, are, are not satisfied with with you know, reality on its face. A lot of people who are socially awkward are that way because they don't deal with uh, the world around them very well. They would rather have, you know, some sort of an escapist fantasy that's easier for them to uh, to fall in line with. And that's why people, you know, latch on to certain, you know, sci-fi properties, you know, like shows, video games, whatever, certain, you know, the, the whole steampunk thing, like something speaks to them in a way and it's a reality that they can come out of their shell in. But the fact remains that like on actual reality, uh, they're, they're still somewhat, you know, socially awkward. And, you know, I was a socially awkward fuck my whole life. There were a lot of people that that were very tolerant with me my my entire life and i'm still learning how to deal with other people and not be a dick and not or at the very least not be perceived as a dick even if i'm not trying to be a dick the the furry fandom like all of these geek fandoms is made up of a lot of a lot of people who legitimately do not know what the boundaries of you know accepted normal society actually are it's not that they are trying to ruin the fandom and it's not like they are trying to freak people out. They legitimately don't know, you know, what's socially acceptable and what isn't. And I'm there in a lot of situations, but I also have the benefit of been groomed as a performer since I was five. I have a, a bit more practice, I should say, in being in front of other people. I don't know. Like, I, I think a lot of the the, the problems that we're, we're going to face are in dealing with people for whom the the fandom is their escape from reality and getting them to not make it so that it interferes with or offends actual reality. Yeah, uh, I'm sure we could have a whole other conversation or a whole other interview on that alone at some point. And it's uh, going to be interesting to see what maybe other people answer on that. We've had some interesting yeah. answers before. We're going to wrap up in a moment with a couple of questions. So, okay. The first one is, um, if you could go visit anywhere in the world, where would you go? Uh, well, not right now, but probably Germany, honestly. I know I have a, a, a contingent of fans in uh, Germany, the Netherlands, and the UK, but wanted to go to a place where most where they don't speak English natively, but enough people understand English that I could probably get by as a tourist a land of really awesome beer, a land of really interesting people. And, you know, back to the, the, the kinky motherfucker thing. There's a lot of kinky bastards in, in Germany as well. So, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun that aspect as well. The scenery is great. Uh, from, from what I've seen there, there is, you know, a, I think, uh, Europe's biggest, uh, furry 
gathering is there as well, right? Yes, Am that's correct. correct. That one? Uh, it's your yeah. reference. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like a, a place that's like, it's just slightly enough outside of my comfort zone, but also there's going to be a lot of familiar things. Cause man, I can, I can, I'm sure I can talk beer with some old German dudes and you know, we'll get enough understanding between, between us. I know what the word Reinheitsgebot means. So I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that we can, we can make this happen. I'd really love to go to Germany uh, eventually. Oh yeah, well let's hope we hope you can get there sometime. And um, so, I, if you're listening to this, poke poke your efforts and try and get him to book me because I think it'd be awesome. <laughs> well, I think it is about due time you come over to Europe at some point as a as a listener of your work for several years. Um, I was going to ask the next question, and I don't know if you feel that's a tie into that, but uh, in terms of you feel like you've already answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway in case there's a different answer here. But uh, what convention would you most like to attend or have attended? Oh wow. Um, you know, I would have said Dragon Con, except I've heard from uh, quite a few people who have been guests there that they kind of treat their guests like shit. So I don't know. I, I, I've, I'm, I've soured on on the behemoth that is Dragon Con at this point. I can't comment. I've, I've, not, been I've not been, so I can't comment. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, any convention off of this continent would be great uh what's what's the big one down in australia uh confuzzled oh, or is that there's confuzzled the uk um okay. i think it's called uh for you or something it used to be like furry down under or something so i think, <laughs> so I think it's <laughs> that, fur- that sounds like a fetish con and maybe why they changed it i don't know but um yeah i mean like like any anywhere that that would allow me to see places off of north america you know i've been i've been blessed enough that i have seen a lot of north america you know grew up in washington state lived in tennessee i now live in the boston area i've you know i've seen a whole lot of this country and there's a lot to see in this country i just i've never been across any of those giant lakes you know on on either side of us Ugh, i don't know i'd i'd like to i'd like to go to any of those conventions and any any place that I can get off this continent would be great. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. As your reference qualifies, but yeah. I, you know, I'd be happy with Confuzzled or or that big one down in Australia. And the name is escaping me. Yeah, it's fine. Um, I, I, that's a perfectly valid answer to me. Um, so the last question, which everyone gets, but I'm going to change it slightly for you because of uh, what you do. No goody. So <laughs> normally this one includes something about music, but I'm going to change it to be something else. And that is, <clears throat> if you were stranded on a desert island, what meal, movie, and video game would you like to have with you? Uh, well, sushi is the answer to meal, no matter what. Which, if I'm on a desert island, I'm pretty sure I'd be able to come by somewhat readily. Uh, let's see, what movie? Not The Hitchhiker's Guide. You know, I've got that one permanently uh, etched into my memory at this point, but what movie? Huh. The one that really still does it for me is The Abyss. Oh, the James Cameron uh, film. Yeah, the like 1988 or 89 movie. And it, it's it's so well done. And especially how it was made, like the, the special effects still stand up for crying out loud. And it's such a well-told story, like the full like three hour like director's cut version of it. It's just it's it's an amazing picture. The theatrical version, they cut out a lot of uh, story arcs, like the whole, I think you know, the entire like alien encounter at the end, they basically cut that all out because it kind of adds like half an hour to the movie that for, you know, for the, the 
the the limited amount of blood that can go into the American butt when they're sitting in a uh, uh, in a movie theater, uh, they're starting to get numb about that point. So like that, they they sort of cut that out. But the the director's cut is just beautiful. Uh, what was the the third one? Normally, the third well. one would be music, but for you, because I'm not going to make you choose, I've said video game. Video game. Can I get the entire Ratchet and Clank uh, saga, or does it have to be one of them? I'm, sh- I'm sure they've got a collector's. Ed- I'm sure they got a collector's edition box set you could take with you. I'm sure. Yeah. Are you uh, looking because, forward? To, are you yeah. looking forward to the Ratchet and Clank movie then? Oh my God! Yes, you have no idea. Like I am, I am waiting with bated breath for that one, mostly because they got you know James Arnold Taylor and the other the other original voice actors for that one uh, as well. I don't know why they went with somebody else for uh, they went with uh what was it Paul Giamatti for Chairman Drek it's probably because they need Sorry, a Holly, it's probably because they need a hollywood name to uh, to drag it in which is uh, which is weird because they've already got hollywood names in there i think like stallone has a part in there for crying out loud but like they the fact that they actually got i think they got the same writers uh who've been who'd been doing the series uh and they they got the same voice actors who who at least for ratchet and clank but also for captain quark and it just it looks like it's going to be so well done i i absolutely cannot wait for that one so i don't know maybe maybe my my i might knock the abyss out of uh, my desert island list once that comes out but uh, well you may maybe if we have when we have you back sometime maybe you can amend that but for now we'll we'll you can take that with you matt thanks very much for uh taking part Hey, it's my pleasure. And uh, if you, uh, I don't know, if you ever want to uh, to do this again, let me know. I This is probably the first interview I've managed to go through without plugging MatthewEbel.com the whole time. Well, I was about to uh, say, so. where can people find your work? But, you know, you've done it for me. Yeah, probably at MatthewEbel.com. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I'm actually going to be releasing something uh, shortly after I hang up with you, actually, I got a, a, a new song to put out. Ah, brilliant. Well, Matt, thank you very much for taking part. And uh, yeah, take care. Hey, you too. I'll see you at the conventions. You've been listening to Pause and Reflect with Matthew Ebel and your host, Mike Pause. If you have enjoyed this, please share it and listen out for more interviews soon. I wish you a good morning, afternoon or evening with maybe in the world.